Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. We used to sing a song at Bodensee of Jesus, I'll hold on to you for the rest of my life. And I can't sing that song. I'm not here because I've held on to Jesus. I'm here because Jesus has not let me go. And I really like that song. Thank you. Well, if you've joined us this morning or you're following online or by live stream, we're considering abiding in Christ this week from John chapter 15. And last evening, we just had a short introduction to this uh, passage. And this morning, the title of my message is this, God's greatest gift. God's greatest gift. Let me read John chapter 15 and verses four and five. Jesus said, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I'd like to talk about God's greatest gift. And it's found at the end of verse 5 in John chapter 15. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, the greatest blessing that God can give to a man is the knowledge of his own destitution. The greatest blessing that God can give to a man is the knowledge of his own de destitution. And you know, really, there's only one kind of person for whom God can do nothing. There's only one kind of person for whom God can do nothing. And that's the person who needs nothing from God. For that person, God can do nothing. And the greatest gift he can give us is the knowledge of how much we need Jesus, both to become a Christian and then to be the Christian we've become. Billy Strachan didn't come to teach at Bodensehof when I was a student there, but I certainly learned of him as soon as I got to know Torchbearers more. He was speaking in Minneapolis where I was going to college the last year of uh, my education. And I went to see Billy and I came to express my concerns about my church and my dissatisfaction with that. And so I went into this spiel about my church and how I was dissatisfied there. And the whole time, Billy was sitting there crocheting. I had never seen a man crochet before, but he had learned how to do that in the Air Force because he had a lot of spare time on his hands. And then after I exhausted my complaining about my church, he said, you know, I really don't know you. Tell me about yourself. And so I went into another 10 minutes of, you know, explaining a little bit about myself, etc., etc. And the whole time he was sitting there crocheting. And then after I said that, he looked at me and he said, now tell me who you are. And I said, well, I, I just did. And he said, no, you didn't. He said, you know who you are? 
you smell like you've just filled your pants and you stink. That's the His Hill version. <laughs> and I was so shocked that he spoke to me in that way. Principal of a Bible school as well. That I didn't know what to say. Well, that was the beginning of a long relationship and friendship with Billy. And he never let me forget who I was. He used to walk up to me at staff conference, put his arm around me, and whisper in my ear, so how's it going, Stinky? <laughs> and he and a number of other people in Torchbearers have never allowed me to dip into my self-deception. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that I grew up around a group of men and women who, yes, who knew they, who they were, but they also had a deep, deep appreciation for who the Lord Jesus was. There will be one thing that will hinder us from entering into the good of the relationship that Jesus Christ describes in John chapter 15, and the thing that will hinder us from entering into the good of it is that we don't know our need for it. You see, humanism says you can. Religion says you must. God says you can't. That's Christianity. Humanism says you can. Religion says you must. And Christ says you can't. And the whole basis of the Christian life from start to finish is based upon that statement. Satan loves religion. It is not without accident that in John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus said to the self-righteous, proud religious leadership, he said, you want, to use, you want to do the desires of your father, the devil. He never said that to the morally bankrupt for the well-known sinners and the people that the self-righteous hated and avoided. Never said things like that to them, but he did to the self-righteous. You see, as offensive as the death of Christ is to a non-Christian, so offensive can be the life of Christ to some Christians who would say, you mean to tell me that I can't live the Christian life? That is exactly what Jesus says. You can't do this on your own. And when Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing, it's pretty frustrating trying to do something when Jesus said you can do nothing. It's pretty frustrating trying to make the impossible possible. And yet, we try it all the time. In Matthew chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 17, God said of his son, Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's interesting that in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, Scripture says that without faith, it is impossible to please God because faith places its trust in the one who pleases God, Christ. It's my faith in Christ that pleases him. 
Not my effort. And certainly I have no righteousness to offer him. I, um, in college, got a hold of a book, and I can't even remember how it happened, but the title of the book was My Greatest Moment with God, and that title intrigued me, My Greatest Moment with God. And I looked into the leaflet of that book, and in the cover, there were names that I recognized uh, of people who are well-known within modern church history. Um, Watchman Nee, Hudson Taylor, Andrew Murray, F.B. Meyer, Amy Carmichael, Helen Rosevere, uh, Gladys Elworth, etc. And then there was another name, and this intrigued me because it was the name Alan Redpath. And Alan Redpath was a staff member of Torchbearers for years, and he lived on the property at Cape and Ray Hall. And I wanted to know what his greatest moment with God was because I got a hold of his books after Bible school and they were such a refreshment to my soul and so strengthening spiritually. I wanted to know what this man's greatest moment with God was because he had blessed my life tremendously. I won't go into the whole story and won't quote the whole thing, but what had happened was he was a pastor, the pastor of Moody Memorial Church then he went to Charlotte Baptist Chapel, and soon after he became pastor there, he had a stroke. It was in 1964. And this stroke uh, was really the trial that brought him to a place again where he realized his need for the Lord. And he describes the experience as very difficult, he describes it as a time as well when he was faced with tremendous temptation that he was actually embarrassed to talk about. And then he says this, and this is where I'll pick up the quote. He said, after weeks of darkness and complete despair, I remember one day crying out to God. Oh, Lord, deliver me from this attack of the devil. Take me right home. I would rather be in heaven than stay any longer and know that the last memory my family would have of me would be of a man living like a cabbage. So please get me out of this situation. It was then for the first time in months that it seemed that the Lord drew very near to me, although he was near all the time, even though I was unconscious of the fact. I had no vision of him or any dramatic touch of healing, but I do know that a deep conviction came into my heart in which he said this. He said, you have this all wrong. The devil has nothing whatever to do with it. It's me, your savior, who has brought this experience into your life to show you two things. First, this is the kind of person with all your sinful thoughts and temptations which you thought were things of the past, but you always will be but for my grace, I never intended to make you a better man. In the second place, I want to replace you with myself if only you will allow me to be God in you and to admit that you're a complete failure and that the only good thing about Alan Redpath is Jesus. 
That, of course, was a truth which I had known in theory and indeed had preached for some years, but now I know it in experience. It says in Romans 7.18, I know I am rotten through and through so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. And when I read that, in my ignorance of the truth of John 15.5, I was shocked. Charlie uh, McCall told me that Alan Redpath was actually on the property here at his hill, and he was walking one day between the chapel and the, the dining hall, and he paused and just stood there for a moment. And a staff member didn't know if everything was okay, so the staff member went to Alan Redpath, and he said, are you okay, Dr. Redpath? And he said, I just don't want to die a dirty old man, this man of God through whom Christ was having his way, said that about himself. And this, for me, was a shock, and it was something that I had to be brought into myself to know that there is no good thing that Peter Reed has to offer Jesus. And the thing that pleases him about my life is my complete trust in Christ. Alan Redpath said later on, God expects nothing more from us than failure, and yet we spend years trying to make ourselves something other than a failure. Somebody's seated here, and they're saying inside, Peter, I can do a lot of things apart from Christ, and that's true. I can do a lot of things apart from Christ, and Scripture calls those things dead works. And in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, Scripture says we are to repent of dead works. Just dead works. Do you know what I've discovered about dead works? Dead works can involve education. Dead works can involve time. Dead works can involve money. They can involve uh, staffing. They can involve planning. They can enjoy recognition. They can enjoy promotion but they're dead. They have absolutely nothing to do with the life of Christ. That's a fact about dead works. We can do a lot apart from Christ, and it will count nothing before God. God calls it wood, hay, and stubble, and when we stand before him and he holds us accountable for our lives, it's going to count for nothing. You can spend a lot of energy and a lot of time doing nothing. A friend of mine studied at one of the most well-known seminaries in the United States, and if I mentioned it, some would know it well. And at that seminary, he got to know a brother from Africa who had been sent there to study for four years to go back and to lead a church in his country. And my friend befriended this African brother, and they approached the end of their education together, and my friend asked this African brother, this godly, humble, clear African brother, he said, you know, you've been in my country for four years now. You've been in our churches, and you've been studying here. Can I ask you, what has impressed you the most? 
And this African brother looked at my friend and said, well, if I was honest with you, what has impressed me most is how much Christians can do without Christ. That was his comment. And I always need to ask myself, could I live the quality of life that I saw call my Christian life, could I live that without Christ today? Major Thomas put it this way, he said, you know, if Christ died today, what would change in my life? Not if Christ died and we're going back 2,000 years, but what would change in my Christian life if Christ was no longer living in me? Would anything change? Or would everything continue just as normal because I have learned how to live what we would call a Christian life without Christ? That would be like asking the, the same question, what if electricity was no longer dwelling within that light bulb? Would anything change? Well, everything would change. And the answer to that question, what if Christ died today, is an indication of how much I depend upon him and how much I have entered in to the good of John chapter 15. Why can't I do anything apart from Christ? Well, the answer is found in John chapter 15 and verse 16. Because in John chapter 15 and verse 16, Jesus said, I appointed you that you might go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And the fruit that remains is fruit that remains for time and eternity. The only thing that I can produce is temporal. The only thing that I can produce is, uh, is short-lived by nature. The fruit that Christ produces comes from eternal life and therefore has eternal value for time and eternity. And that's the work that God is going to be pleased with in my life. The extent to which I allow Christ to do the eternal thing through my life. Because the only thing I can do is terminal. It's temporary. And it won't count before the eternal God. Jesus produces the fruit that remains. And that's why, as we talked about, you know, these, these plants last night, it's the origin. It's the origin of my Christian life that is most important. Because when the origin is right, the content's right. And when the origin is eternal life, the content will be eternal fruit. And that means Christ is going to have to produce it. So what credit can a light bulb take for shining when it's indwelt by electricity? It can't take the credit. Because you remove the presence of electricity from a bulb and it cannot shine. That's not difficult. It's impossible. That's how dependent upon electricity a light bulb is. And electricity doesn't zap the bulb. It needs to be present continually. And working in the bulb to make it do the thing that it was created to do. I want to mention two things here. 
To say that apart from Christ, we can do nothing does not mean two things. Number one, it does not mean that we are worthless. We're not talking about our worth. We're just talking about our condition. And we are, we are so valued by the Lord that he came to die in my place to redeem me, to buy me back. I was talking to Charlie McCall and we were, you know, a bunch of guys, um, <laughs> we were telling stories. And the topic was, have you ever been robbed? And so we're talking about our stories about when we were robbed. And within the course of that conversation, Charlie mentioned something very interesting. He said, there's a law in Texas that says this. If somebody breaks into my home and robs my cell phone and then takes my cell phone to a pawn shop and gets some cash for it and then takes off, and because I have an app on my wife's phone, that says, find my phone. I need another app that, that says, find my Frau, but that's a different topic. And I can go and find my cell phone at this pawn shop. The law says, I have to buy it back. I said, that's a stupid law. What do you mean you have to buy back what is already yours in the first place? That's the law. Do you know that is exactly what God did? I am his by creation, and I am also his by redemption. He came to buy back what was rightfully his in the first place. From that fact, I derive my value. And my concern today is that, that, that we are raising a generation that, that somehow um, is so concerned about their self-esteem that we are not realizing the fact that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so we are shocked by this experience. Don't be shocked because Jesus isn't. And secondly, when it says, for apart from me, you can do nothing, it doesn't mean that I end up being a passive blob. Jesus does everything and I do nothing. That is a false and incorrect uh, understanding of what the life of faith in Christ is for two reasons. Number one, scripture calls faith an act, calls it a work. Faith is something that you have to do consciously, actively, continually. It's something that I have to engage in. And secondly, when I begin to reckon with the presence of Christ and he begins to work in my life, he will begin to change my desires and my motives and I will begin to engage in things that I didn't want to before. Not because I have to, but because I want to. You know, if, if, I, if I go to work and uh, really sense a dislike for my coworker on the job, but they know I'm a Christian I feel anything but liking them, actually a, 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 a strong disliking of them, but because I'm a Christian, I have to show them love. And so, although verging on hate on the inside, I'm supposed to, you know, uh, give love on the outside. That's not Christianity. That's hypocrisy. 
Christianity is actually when Christ changes my motives and my values from the inside and I sense love for a person that I would normally dislike, that's a miracle and that's Christianity. And I do that over and over and over again. You see, Christianity and abiding in Christ, it's not all of Christ and none of me, nor is it all of me and none of Christ, but it's all of me engaging with all of him. It will demand everything from me to engage with him. And that will be walking and then working out what he works in. It will involve what we talked about this morning, being involved in this conflict that, that we're involved in this world. And it's not just we're involved in a conflict out there. There's a conflict in here that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. So abide in me. Why? Because apart from me, you can de- do nothing. Abide in me. When Gabby and I fly from Frankfurt to the United States, we're flying Lufthansa and United, and usually we're going to go to Chicago or Denver. And when I get into that plane, my responsibility is to stay there. And for about nine hours, I am utterly dependent upon that plane to get me to our destination. And then I arrive at our destination and I'll say something like, well, we flew in from from Frankfurt today. Oh, really? You flew? No, I didn't. But I was totally dependent upon the thing that was able. And my responsibility was to remain in the plane because once I decide that a plane is dispensable to flying, I'm hopeless. I will fall 32 feet per second per second and, and land up like a fried egg on the, on the face of the earth. My job is to abide in the plane. My job is to depend upon the ability of something that can do what I can't. That's the Christian life. And of course, I'm not going to consider the, the plane dispensable. Of course, I'm not going to go up to the emergency exit and say, you know what, I don't need this 747. I'll just do it on my own. That would be stupid. You're safe in abiding in Christ. The great danger is when we're not. Paul put it this way. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 and verse 9 this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. But in God who raises the dead. What needs to die? My self-confidence my ego. Don't misunderstand me. We need confident Christians today, but their confidence needs to be transferred from self to Christ. We need Christ-confident Christians who have lost all hope in themselves at the same time. Both happen at the same time. We must come to distrust ourselves and trust Christ utterly. I'm sorry we don't have PowerPoint. I'd show you this picture, 
But when I go on a run behind our home, there's a lot of farmland, a lot of fruit orchards. That's where we live in southern Germany. And there is a crucifix. There's a wood carving of a crucifix. And underneath it is this plaque. And it is carved in wood. And it has this phrase on it. And the phrase in German is, Das tat ich für dich, was tust du für mich? Translated, that means, I did this for you, what do you do for me? And that is the attitude that we take into the Christian life. That was my philosophy of the Christian life. <laughs> Before I met Billy Strachan and others who helped me understand this. I thought, well, if Christ did that much for me, then I owe him a godly life. It just made sense. It was kind of like payback. And I began to treat the grace of God like a loan that I needed to pay back. And so for me, as a, as a young Christian, my life was, was all about my dedication to live for Christ. It sounds so good. And so my dedication involved a list that was common to my denomination and my generation. You do this, this, and this, and this, and don't do this, this, and this, and this. And the problem was, the more I tried, the more I failed. And the more I failed, the more shame was placed upon me. And the more shame that was placed upon me, the more I decided, well, I'll just settle for the peace of defeat as a Christian. Others have more de dedication. That's why they get it. But, but I don't have that. Then I went to Bodensee in 1979. And I don't know who planned this. The first guest, guest lecture lectured from the book of Hosea. I had never heard of Hosea before because I got stuck in my read through the Bible in a year program in Leviticus, got discouraged and didn't continue. So I didn't know who Hosea was. And I can't remember much of what was said that week, but I will never forget when somebody said, which a good number of us have already heard, he said, you need to know that the Christian life is not difficult. Well, when he said that, I was utterly confused because it seemed very difficult to me and I was having a tough time. And I'd come to Bible school to learn how to live the Christian life with more dedication. Well, he didn't stop there. He said, the Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible. And it's like, I closed my Bible and I said, I just flew 5,000 miles, paid that amount of money, better said my parents did, to listen to somebody tell me that the Christian life that I've been trying to live is impossible. Listen very carefully. My confusion at that statement was indicative of the spiritual deception under which I had been suffering for the first few years of my Christian life. Nobody told me that I couldn't live the life to which God had called me. And it took about five more years before I came to the end of myself. I'll talk about that at the end of this message. Nowhere in the New Testament does the New Testament talk about dedicating yourself to live for Christ? In fact, I went to my concordance 
And I wanted to know where does that word appear in the New Testament? It appears once in John chapter 10 and verse 22 when scripture speaks of an obscure festival that the Jews uh, uh, celebrated, obscure in the sense that we don't talk about it as Christians. It was called the Feast of Dedication, dedicating the temple. But the New Testament does not talk about me dedicating myself to live for Christ. Doesn't speak about dedication, it speaks about death. It speaks about the fact that I come to the end of myself and say, I have nothing to contribute in my own righteousness to the Christian life. The only thing I can contribute is my dependence and my faith upon Christ. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, deceives himself. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, he who thinks he is something when he is nothing, deceives himself. Peter was living in self-deception when he dedicated himself to copy Jesus. And when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, Peter actually said, Lord, it may be that everybody else will fall away, but not me. In fact, I'm ready to go with you to death. And of course, we know the story. In fact, Luke's gospel in Luke 22 that says that Jesus' eyes met Peter, his eyes. And Peter remembered the word that Jesus had said to him. And it says that he went out and he wept bitter tears. And when he wept those bitter tears, it wasn't Christ who was disappointed with Peter. For heaven's sakes, Jesus said it beforehand, this is going to take place. The one who was disappointed with Peter was Peter. And he was suffering under self-condemnation. And that self-condemnation was rooted in his self-righteousness and his pride was pouting. But Jesus wasn't shocked. Jesus wasn't disappointed. Jesus knew exactly who he got when he took on Peter. And Jesus knows exactly who he got when he took on Peter Reed. And he knew exactly what he was going to find in Peter Reed's heart when he went to live in me by his spirit. He's not shocked by that. I am. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist. He worked in Vienna before the war, was then incarcerated in Auschwitz. And he wrote a book that I had to read in college, Man's uh, Search for Meaning. And he said this. He said, any organ that is aware of itself is sick. Any organ that's aware of itself is sick. You see, When I am so taken up either with my self-righteousness or my self-condemnation, I'm sick. That preoccupation with self is a sickness in the church. And it is one of the biggest thieves of joy that I know in the Christian life. And and we swing between the two. We swing between our self-righteousness and our self-condemnation. And and pretty soon we we just fall into the black hole of what I call the, the paralysis of analysis. And it's horrible. Either measuring yourself up to others 
and judging them because that's the only way we can set ourselves above them, or wallowing in our self-pity, which is pride turned inwards. Faith is a preoccupation with Christ, not ourselves. Here's the thing. It was in 1979 that I had a group of teachers come to Bodenseehof, and they spoke about the indwelling life of Christ. And something deep inside me said, this is so true, this is what I had been searching for. And not only did they teach it, but they lived in such a way that I sensed that when I got around them. And when I got around them, what I learned now is that Jesus was very simply manifesting his presence through weak people who had come to the knowledge of themselves. And it was so attractive that I became hungry for it. I read The Saving Life of Christ more than once. And I had all the language. But I didn't know about any of it in life. That's the danger. You can have the language, but not have the life. And there was a discrepancy between my theology in my head and my experience. And that discrepancy became more and more acute, and I became very frustrated with that. Because I was saying to myself, this makes perfect sense, but I don't know the reality of it in my experience. And I had ran after teachers who would remind me of that over and over and over again. And it wasn't until 1985, when Major Thomas had come to Minneapolis, that I just exposed my desperation to him. And at the end of a week of meetings at Northwestern College, I sat in his room and I said, Major Thomas, this is nothing new. I've read your books, book multiple times. I have heard people teach the saving life of Christ. I have even uh, preached it to others. But I have to admit to you, I don't know it in my own experience. And I say that consciously today at a torchbearer center because that was my home. You can have the language without the life. Well, Major Thomas got quiet. I remember him speaking about faith. Then he prayed for me. And I walked out of his room and two things happened. Number one, he wrote a letter to Charlie Moore and said, I would not invite Peter Reed to be on your staff. He's a dead loss. I have been with him all week. If I had known that, I would have said, praise God, I'm out of this. Because I had committed myself to come back on staff, but I had enough horse sense to know, why should I teach others about the indwelling life of Christ if I don't know anything of it in my experience? That was driving me crazy. But the second thing that happened was this. For the very first time in my life, and it was more out of a sense of desperation and frustration, I said, Lord Jesus, I don't see you, I don't feel you. But it says all over the New Testament, you live in me. Now, I didn't make that up. It's God's revealed word. So I'm going to hold God responsible for what he has said and hold him responsible to make it my experience. And so what I'm going to do, nobody told me to do this. I said, thank you that you live in me. 
I don't feel you, but God's word says you're there. So I thank you that you are. I went home, went to bed, and I said, thank you. I got up the next morning and I skipped my quiet time. But I did get up and say, Lord, I thank you that you live in me. I was delivering tomatoes to supermarkets. It was a very spiritual, you know, activity. But throughout the day, I was saying, Lord, I thank you that you live in me. And I went to bed at night and I said, thank you that you live in me. Woke up the next morning and said, thank you that you live in me. Your word says it and I'm holding you responsible for it. So I thank you. And it was like slowly but surely I was walking out of this cloud and one day my parents with whom I was living that summer said to me, what happened to you? And I said, what do you mean what happened to me? They said, you've changed. I didn't know that I had changed, but I knew my need for Jesus and I knew that I could hold him responsible for his word. You see, as soon as we are aware of our own righteousness, it's self-righteousness and that stinks. What I am aware of is my tremendous need for the righteousness of Christ and that I don't have it. And I am aware that, that God's word says I live in you. That's what I'm aware of. And so Paul put it this way in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 12, so death works in us, but life in you. We don't notice that. What we're aware of is our need for Christ. What others are aware of is Christ's presence in our lives. And personally, it's my conviction that sometimes he probably blinds us from being aware of that so that we wouldn't become proud because of it because our hearts are inherently arrogant. So we come to the end of this message today and I want to invite us to perhaps even today repent of our Christless Christianity. Come to the place of repentance where you don't just change your mind about the bad that you do, but about the good that you can't do. Don't just change your mind about the sins that you do, but change your mind about the sinner that you are. Do you remember that passage that we looked at last night from Isaiah chapter five and God speaks about his vine for whom he could do no more. And he said, I did all of that, but they produced sour grapes. Their whole record and their whole history with me is a history of failure. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. And God addresses his people. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1, God says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Friends, that does not make sense. Because how can you buy anything without money? That's not how our economy works. 
the more valuable something is, the more money you have to pay to obtain it. I have a friend who works in the design department at Mercedes-Benz, and he builds clay models of new series of cars that they're gonna produce, and then he produces a life-size model out of wood, and then one day he called me and he said, Peter, I've got a test car, it's a new series that com that's coming out and I've got to put a certain number of kilometers on it. Can my wife and I drive down and, and see you and Gabi? I said, of course. And so he drove into our parking lot and it didn't have the Mercedes star in front so that you would know whose model it was. It was kind of, it was like, the, you know, soldier's fatigues. It was brown, green and black in color. And I got into the passenger's seat right beside him and he pushed a button and my seat started to massage me. <laughs> there was a screen uh, on the console before him and he looking at this angle saw his um, GPS and me from this angle, I was watching a Bundesliga soccer game but there was no split in the screen. It just had to do with the angle at which you looked at it. Then he said, you see those sensors up there, if my eyes begin to, you know, get, my, my eyelids start to drop, they beep and wake me up. Well, the obvious question I asked was this, how much is a car like this gonna cost? He said about 150,000 euros. And I said to myself, I work at Bodensiof, I will never own a car like that. Because the more valuable something is, the more money you have to pay to get it. That's how the economy works. The economy of God works in the opposite direction. Do you remember the first words of Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And so he says, come without money and buy. But you say to yourself, Lord, I can't do that. I don't have anything to offer you. Great, that's the currency I accept. It's the people who say and insist I have something to offer you. I can't do anything with them. But if you come today empty-handed and you come bankrupt, that's the one I accept. Remember what follows in Isaiah 55 in verses eight and nine? God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I've seen that verse, Isaiah 55 and verses eight and nine, on cards to comfort people. Well, his ways are not our ways, so you know you don't need to understand this. That is a misappropriation of that verse. What we don't understand is Isaiah 55 and verse one, that I can come without money and buy. That's what we don't understand. It goes so against the pride of the human heart to accept something for nothing. Our big fat ego just can't handle that. I'd rather do it on my own. Why? Because I get the credit. Friend, don't ever fear coming to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I cannot live the life to which you've called me. I can't do this. 
Do you know what? That's not going to drive him from you. That's going to draw him to you. He would be delighted to hear that. To come to him empty-handed and say, yes, Lord, I now know. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Nothing. Lord, I've been doing a lot of nothing for a long time, and I'm tired. We can come today empty-handed to Jesus as a child of God. Again, that may scare us to death, but don't ever forget, I can come without money. A man by the name of Hermann von Betzel said this. He said, godliness is the attitude which considers dependence upon God true happiness. Godliness is the attitude which considers dependence upon God true happiness. That's a happy person. The happy person is actually the bankrupt person continually draws from Christ because they have nothing to offer him in and of themselves. Dr. Hunter used to pause for 60 seconds after he preached so that we could respond to what God has been saying to us. So let's do that now. Just have 60 seconds of silence to speak to the Lord and then I'll close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you knew what you got when you came to live in us. You aren't shocked. You aren't dismayed. But you came to live in the likes of us that you might replace us with yourself. Lord, forgive us for our attitude of thinking that I have something to offer you which God would call good. And Lord, we come today, perhaps some of us, wanting to change our mind about our Christless Christianity, admit our fatigue to you and our sense of defeat because we've been trying to do it on our own. And Lord, I thank you so much that poverty is the way to blessing. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you live in us. We don't have to ask you to go with us because you do. And Lord, may your word bear fruit and may you witness by your spirit to the truth of this so that we would act accordingly. We pray this in your name.
Amen.